1: Hadrian's Wall is one of the most famous Roman sites in Britain, this physical frontier on a far-flung corner of the Roman Empire. But it was not the only wall the Romans constructed in Britain. They built another, and this one even further north, that crossed the neck of Scotland between the Firth of Forth and the River Clyde. This was the Antonine Wall. To talk about this wall and its history, I am chatting with Andrew Tibbs, Andrew has recently written a book all about the Romans in Scotland, and no surprise, the Antonine Wall forms a key part of that history. Enjoy. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, first of all, the Antonine Wall in Roman Scotland, can we say that this wall is the northernmost physical barrier of the Roman Empire?
2: No, that would be uh, very misleading. It's the northernmost limit of the empire in the Antonine period, although they do fall back to Hadrian's Wall around about the time he he dies. Um, In the first century, we've got evidence of them going up into Aberdeenshire. So just outside Inverness, there are a couple of Roman camps. Uh, There are some antiquarian accounts that indicate maybe they've gone even further than that. And later, when Septimius Severus becomes emperor, he decides he's going to try and conquer Scotland. It's it's a bit of a pattern with the emperors. And he goes up. Now, we don't know exactly how far he gets. We know he's in Aberdeenshire. We've got evidence of him uh, setting up Roman camps up there. We've got an account um, that says he stood on the edge of Britain and marveled at how the length and the days were completely different from back in Rome. Um, probably a lot colder as well. Uh, we don't know where that is. Is an account? It may be fabricated. I suspect it's, he stood somewhere and said this, um, but but uh, that was also pushing the limit of the empire. And even in the Antonine period, the wall is this linear complex of a monument. Complexes and it has several components. Um but we do know they're they're further north, so the Antonine Wall runs very roughly between Edinburgh and Glasgow, that sort of stretch of land. Um up in Perth, at the fort there of Bertha, it's originally a first century fort. We have evidence from um pottery that indicates it was reoccupied in the Antonine period. So in in sort of Roman frontier studies, which is, is my field the word frontier, limit of the empire, edge of the empire is a very fluid term. And that's it's not, we mustn't get bogged down in this sort of linear thing. So even Hadrian's Wall is never the limit of the empire. They, they are occupying several forts north of Hadrian's Wall. And we even have some evidence uh, from Egypt that the limit of that frontier, we've got soldiers that are posted a 100 odd miles beyond the frontier itself. So it's not a very big line in the sand for the Romans.
1: So what examples of Roman conquest do we have? Well, what examples do we have of the Romans in Scotland before the creation of the Antonine Wall?
2: The first sort of invasion is in the Flavian period. Um, We've got a great Roman text um, by a guy called Tastus, and he writes about Agricola, who's a Roman general. He's the governor of Britain. He comes to effectively conquer the north. That's what he does. Um, We have to be careful because it's a text. The archaeological evidence sometimes doesn't lend itself to that. And indeed, beyond this book, we've only got two inscriptions that that mention Agricola, Um, and those are both from um, St Albans and Chester. But he comes north. Um, He builds a series of Roman camps and builds Roman forts. We're told that he builds a series of fortifications between... Uh, two estuaries scholars translate that as being the fourth and the Clyde so there's a line of fortifications there the archaeological evidence isn't wholly supportive of that but it isn't wholly unsupportive of it And so he comes he builds all his uh, Roman troops appear to be withdrawn possibly because there's activity in Germany and they fall back to what is the, the northernmost limits of the empire which is the Steingate and that's a Roman road that runs more or less between, almost between Newcastle and um, Bowness on Solway, so Carlisle area. We haven't uncovered all of that, but that's that's the sort of limit there, those fortifications. Withdraw from then, Hadrian comes along, builds this big wall that a few people may have heard of. There are a few outpost forts of that, as I say. Um, Hadrian dies, and then the next guy that comes along is... Um, Fulvius Aelius Hadrianus Antoninus Augustus Pius, so the Emperor Antonine. And he decides, probably because he's working a bit of military prestige, he's he's not got a huge military background, um, and he decides he's going to build a new frontier, conquer Scotland, something that the great Augustus, uh, sorry, the great uh, Agricola, not Augustus, wrong period, the great Agricola um, didn't manage to, to do, So he starts reoccupying some of the southern fortifications, southern Scotland fortifications that um, Agricola had, and then he decides he's going to build a wall. So we've got a bit of activity going on before Antonine comes along and and starts building his wall. So
1: now this wall is very different to Hadrian's wall in its construction. Uh, How is, what do we know, what has archaeology told us about how this wall was constructed?
2: Yeah, so... uh, like I said before, wall is a bit misleading because it's a lot more complicated than that. So on the southern side, so in the sort of Roman zone, um, you have a road, the Military Way, and um, that's the name that, that we've given to it. Um, then you have the rampart, so that's the wall part. Um, then you have a slight rise, which is called the berm, and then you have a ditch. Now, that, that's the bit that's fundamentally sort of different from hadrian's wall because it has a ditch in front but it also has the vallum behind and the vallum is a wide it's very difficult to describe it's a very very wide ditch with a flat bottom um, we don't really know the purpose of it um we've not done huge analysis the antonine wall doesn't have that it just has the ditch in front when they're building the ditch all that content is put on the front that's um to create what's called the outer mound that is quite a rough and fairly inconsistent feature that, that we've found. And then within that, we have um, these pits, which we call Lilia. And these are sort of um, oval-shaped pits that would have had spikes in it, possibly covered over with leaves. So if you're the enemy, you're coming from the north, you're running ahead, you see a bit of boggy ground or what looks like some rotting leaves, you put your foot in it and you go through thorns or massive spikes giving the Romans a bit of time to chase, uh, throw things at you and, and attack. Then you go over into the ditch. The ditch has um, this this nasty little feature. Romans are really great at uh, uh, incapacitating the the attacking enemy. Uh, they've got these this little slot in the ground at the bottom of the ditch, which we call an ankle breaker. And basically it was so steep you just went in and, and would have gone over and broken your ankle. Um, and then you're going up the mound while you've got Romans that are towering five, six, seven metres above you, throwing things down on you. So that that's what the Antonine Wall is. The rampart, the wall itself, um, it differs from most of Hadrian's Wall because Hadrian's Wall is built out of stone. It's very impressive. It may have had lime mortar on the front, would have looked very intimidating uh, to anybody approaching it. The Antonine Wall is built of turf. So it's a very different construction. It's on a a stone foundation. Um, We know this, we've excavated this. You can still see bits of the stone foundation. In certain places, they have little culverts, drainage ditches built through them so the water can flow through. And then it's turf slabs. um, And they're just layered on top of each other. And it would have been up probably to about a height, well, the stone base itself is about 4.3 metres wide so it gives you an idea this is quite a big structure and then the height would have probably been around three meters now of course none of it survives for anything beyond about 1.8 meters uh, in places today but the the archaeologists that looked all this estimate around three meters now if you're also putting a walkway on top we have no evidence for that and if you ask the archaeologists that deal with Hadrian's Wall was there a walkway on top you get into Hours and hours of debate on this, because there's not evidence, but then, if you're looking down on the enemy and you've got all these defensive features, you must have been able to attack them somehow. Anyway, if there was a walkway, it would have taken the height up to probably around 5 metres. So, bearing in mind you've got a ditch, and and in places that's 12 metres wide, um, some places it drops down to 9 or 6, but you've got a depth of about 3.5 to 4 metres in that, so... If you're down there, you're you're about two metres high. You're looking up, uh, what's that, five, six, seven, eight to eight metres above you, plus a Roman that would have been probably slightly under two metres tall. So, you know, this is a very different beast from Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall is, I think, it's, it's the monument where they've had a bit more time to make it look a bit more intimidating, a bit more time to dig out the stone to do that. The Antine Wall is very different. It was made of turf, it was probably thrown up a lot quicker. Perhaps stone wasn't as accessible as Hadrian's wall, but you you are talking a very different wall than that.
1: But still, these sound like absolutely formidable defences for anyone trying to attack the wall to get past. Do you think these defences, are they unanimous throughout along the whole stretch of the wall? Were they being similar all the way along from west to east?
2: Generally speaking, yes. Uh, from what we know, now, it's a turf wall it's eroded, it's been built on. You're talking about the industrial heartland of Scotland. It's where the Industrial Revolution kicks off in Scotland and, and certain parts of the wall. Uh, and a lot of it's destroyed because of this. But from the pockets of excavation we've done, it generally seems to be similar. Now, this outer mound um, seems to vary in places, we have these lilia pits now we've got great examples from a place called rough castle uh, it's more or less the center of the wall and we've got one or two other examples um that have recently come to light on hadrian uh sorry on the Antonine Wall, and we've also got some examples from hadrian's wall uh down near segadunum which is at the eastern end of, the, of hadrian's wall we've come across this now as i say a lot of the wall has been developed and and That gives us very limited insights into what's lying underneath all the modern development. Perhaps things like the Lilia exist more consistently. Um, We've just not looked for them. We've just not found them. Quite often excavations of the wall haven't gone that far in front of the wall. It's just been little snapshots. The Military Way as well, that's another curious feature you would expect that to run the length of the wall. But again, we have pockets of it existing and other pockets of the road not existing. So there was a guy, Daryl Roll from Durham University. He was looking for bits of the wall at Kineil, um which is in the eastern end on the 4th. Um, and he did geophysical survey and couldn't find any traces of what he thought the road was. But again, you're talking there about a, a medieval um, tower house that's developed had formal gardens it could be that all this has been eroded sections of the road the military way they're not what you would traditionally view a roman road they're not quite cobbled and metalled and very formal and very nice looking that we we kind of see around the place it's slightly rougher than that so it could be a case of uh, mistaken identity or, or as i say it's been eroded or we just haven't found it yet. A lot, again, a lot of excavations don't go that far back when they're, they're digging bits of the wall. They're not necessarily looking for the whole complex. I mean, you mentioned
1: the military road just then. So let's talk about, let's dive into the logistics of the, of the wall and how it was created. Do we know anything about how the Romans would have maintained communications with forts along the length of the wall? Or, and also, I guess, with communications with the legions stationed further south?
2: Yeah, I mean, you've you've got the traditional sort of Roman post where they would have sent messages back and forth on on horseback, and presumably that's part of the function of the military way. Um, there's also some signalling now. There's been a lot of extensive work by David Wooliscroft on different frontiers, and he's looked at the Antonine Wall. One of the problems with doing that sort of modelling on us on a site, the the, the wall, of the monument is that it's as i say all this urban development so it's not quite so easy to do signaling modeling because you don't necessarily know the topography and what other roman sites towers would have featured as part of that what we do know about the antonine wall and again similar to hadrian's wall is that there are outer fortifications that that aren't attached to the wall and and There were 17 forts um, located uh, along the line of the wall. There's probably one or two more that are missing. But beyond the wall, um, we've got a number of forts as well. So in the east, we've got um, Carradine. It's a small fort site. We've known about it since, I think, the 17th century. It's one of the only ones that we know has a name. Um, We found an altar stone that names what was presumably the settlement outside it. But we think that's probably part of the whole wall complex because it's showing Antonine material. Going further east into the outskirts of Edinburgh, um there's Cramond, which is a Roman fort. Um it has got a village on it now, but pockets of excavation have indicated an Antonine date for that site. Um it's right on the coast. There's there's incredibly limited evidence of a harbour there, but again, a lot of it has been developed. In the 1690s, a uncle Robert Sybold reported that there was part of a harbour that was believed to be Roman um, there. So he'd found some cement, mortar, lime mortar, and, and other bits and pieces. Further east from that, on the other side of Edinburgh, um, is another Roman fort at a place called Inveresque. It's another river site that's on the Forth and on a on river itself. Again, evidence has shown that's Antonine in date. But there's no evidence of a harbour there, although what a harbour would have looked like, whether wooden structures would survive to the modern period, given the the, um, underwater conditions, we don't quite know. So on the eastern side, we've got several fortifications, probably part of a supply chain heading uh, down the coast, uh, probably towards South Shield, somewhere like that. On the other side of Scotland, over the Glasgow end, You have the River Clyde. Um, That's a very important river. You can get quite far inland with that. It's what made Glasgow the second city of the Empire. Um, It's such a major uh, waterway. Um, The Antime Wall runs slightly to the north of that, but on the opposite side from the end of the wall. So the wall ends at a place called Old Kilpatrick. The fort there is now covered by a bus depot. Over over the opposite side of the river is another Antonine Fort. We've not really done much work on it. Um, it's called White Moss, a place called Bishopton. And then you've got the land sort of curves round and heads southwards. Above the Clyde there, um, we've got a number of fortlets, um, one called Lurgmoor and another called Outerwards. They're connected by roads. Um, they indicate an Antonine date of origin for those sites. And they probably were acting partly as signal stations so that someone's coming up the coast can be seen quite far from there. Because you're talking about being on the hills above the River Clyde, um, the Firth of Clyde uh, and the Irish Sea. And you've also got a tower that would have been about 10 metres high on those sites. So you've got great signalling capacity. We've not done huge amounts of work on that. We've not done modern modelling on that. But they would have been the sort of outer limits of the Antonine Wall. And it's very similar to Hadrian's Wall on the eastern coast because you've got all the Cumbrian forts, Hard Knot and, and the other ones to the north uh, that lead up to the end of Hadrian's Wall. And you've also got a series of towers that are probably used for signalling that go down the coast there. We don't really know the extent of Roman activity in in the east of Scotland when you get out to the coast. There are some... Very old antiquarian accounts, so three, four hundred years old of Roman material coming up in a place called Largs. And it appears that this road going over the moors heads towards Largs. And then further down the coast, we've got some evidence from another place called Ardrossan. But of course, these have now got settlements on them and very little comes out. But there was some pottery found, I think, in the 1960s from Largs found on the beach which has only recently in a couple of past couple of years been dated to the Antonine period. So there's a good indication there may be something going on, but we need to do a heck of a lot more work. Well, I look forward to seeing that work
1: in, in due time. That was remarkable what you were saying, though. Um, it sounds like a lot of the Antonine forts, well, especially near the coast, were situated along rivers.
2: Yeah, I mean, the whole construction of the Antonine Wall, it's on the narrowest bit of land between the east and west coasts of Scotland. So you've got um, in the east, so the Edinburgh side, and and Boness is where we think the wall ends. Um, There's a modern town there, but there's indication that's probably the the terminus of that, that end of the wall. Um, That's on the south shore of the Forth. And the Forth comes inland and then it heads northwards and it connects with some of the first century fortifications and then on the other coast you've got the Clyde which comes in, heads south by Glasgow and that heads quite far south into Scotland and then between those two you've got the River Kelvin now this is the industrial heartland of Scotland as I said Um, we've got the 4th Clyde Canal which runs between the 4th more or less near Boness. And then we have the canal going over to Old Kilpatrick, where the wall ends. So a lot of this has changed river levels. It's it's damaged the environment. Uh, the canal itself cuts through the um, Antonine Wall three or four times, and that so a lot of what we've got we have to piece together. It's a lot different from Hadrian's Wall, which is a sort of straight line of of big wall that you can't really miss, and even when it's disappeared, you roughly know where it's heading. On that. But a lot of the fortifications are built more or less respecting the topography. So you've got hills to the south, the wall kind of follows that line. Then you have the valley, which is the 4th and the Clyde Valleys. And then you go into the sort of hillier territory as you sort of head towards the highlands and the, the geological fault line and that. But they're they're built in the best place rather than respecting the rivers completely, although the big rivers are being used Presumably for supply troop movement, that sort of thing
1: okay, so built more as in for the best place, mm. I guess against for people further north, and so these people who are stationed on the wall for this purpose, who were the Roman soldiers who were stationed on the antonine wall
2: like anywhere else in the empire you you're talking about people that that came from uh, across the the empire and um, probably beyond in that. We haven't really found any cemeteries on the Antonine Wall, so we don't really know about the individuals too much. Um, we've got a couple of gravestones here and there, a couple of altars. Um, we also have things like the distance slabs, so they're quite useful. So these are, are markers that individual cohorts, groups of soldiers, would build a section of the wall and then have a commemorative stone placed on it, saying that, that we, whoever they are, built x x number of miles or feet of of roman wall so we have little insights like that um what we really need to do is find a cemetery and and do a whole scale excavation because the dating you can tell from not just the objects and the materials but also um from the the bones and the remains themselves tell you whole amount about where people came from what their diet was whether they were eating things locally or bringing food in
1: but does it, you mentioned they're coming from all across the empire. Does that suggest that these were auxiliaries serving on this frontier rather than the hard-hitting legionaries?
2: We, we know that legionaries were constructing the wall. Um, we, we've got evidence of that from the, the distance slabs. We've also got evidence, um, as I say, from people coming in in that. And, and it was traditional in the empire to bring people from different parts. So we know that Batasians were, were serving on the wall. Um, I think there were Syrian archers. There's evidence of those from from the gravestones. So I think auxiliaries and legionaries would have been serving on the wall. Um, Just looking at that and the actual archaeological evidence, you want to find evidence of those individuals, you know, the belongings of individuals. We don't have much of that on the wall. It's it's not like Vindolanda, where you've gone through 12 different phases of fortification. Um, It's waterlogged. You've got a lot of preservation, the Antonine Wall tends to be a lot of rescue archaeology in different forms and that, and, and we find out great things from those, but it's not always a sort of very um more relaxed pace that you, that you would have at somewhere like Vindolanda, where where you target this area and you keep going for several years, and you know, we just aren't getting that on on the Antonine Wall.
0: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Does the archaeology that's been uncovered, does any of it suggest that the wall was ever under serious attack during its occupation?
2: It's a good question, and it's not something that shows up necessarily in the archaeology. You're, you're looking for either human remains in and around the wall, maybe from a cemetery, which, which we haven't excavated, we haven't got any of those located. So you're looking for those sort of remains that would imply there has been some sort of uh, attack or, or people have been injured. The wall being breached, because it doesn't survive in its original form, its original height anywhere, we haven't really got much evidence of of anything like that. Now, it seems logical to suggest that that's a very strong possibility, but you have to bear in mind this wall was only occupied for maybe 30, 40 years, if that. It's, It's not like Hadrian's Wall, which is more or less continuously occupied for large parts of the Roman period, For Hadrian's Wall, we've we've got a lot of evidence, textual evidence, that indicates the wall was breached and that. Um, We don't really have that in the Antonine Wall. I think there are one or two accounts that imply a wall was breached, Um, but more likely to be Hadrian's Wall because the Antonine Wall, we think, wasn't being occupied uh, at those times.
1: So I guess that goes on to the question, as you say, 40 years after its construction, it is abandoned like a roman generation as it were do we know once again sorry a very difficult question with the archaeology but do we know why the wall really was abandoned
2: no we don't um i don't think there's anything in the textual evidence that that really indicates there's a lot of theory that, that again trouble elsewhere troops withdrawn meant a fallback so we we know the Antonine wall's built around 142 AD, so a couple of years after Antoninus Pius comes to the the throne, we know that around 158 AD, Hadrian's Wall is beginning to be refurbished. The fortification has been redone. We have some epigraphic evidence, some inscriptions that say, so-and-so rebuilt this, tidied this up, that sort of thing. We believe generally that the Antonine Wall was probably abandoned around 163 to 165 AD. Um, Slightly controversial numbers there. It's a couple of years after Antoninus Pius dies. But we also have some evidence that the the wall was reoccupied again later um, in the period. So it's occupied about 142 to 155 but certain pockets of forts also indicate a reoccupation around 158, so at the time Hadrian's walls being sort of refurbished and that. But again, we we've not done huge amounts of modern excavation. A lot of our dating is limited. A lot of it is based on Samian ware and coins, which is great. But that's not necessarily uh given added weight from rigorous scientific testing from dendrochronology or radiocarbon dating, and that's really because again there's been a lot of urban urban led uh development and that when that's caused us to excavate the sites
1: I mean it's a remarkable amount of land just the size of it you know to retreat from the Antonine wall all the way back to Hadrian's Wall. is that like sacrificing? Most of modern day Scotland, southern Scotland.
2: Southern Scotland, yes, it would be. And bearing in mind that there is some evidence of activity in some of the forts beyond the Antonine Wall, so Perth, the fort at Bertha uh, up there. Um, again, a lot of this dating is based on pottery, and, and you can say the pottery was in use in these periods. It doesn't necessarily mean that there were people occupying it there, they may have been there longer. It may have been someone later, someone indigenous, coming and settling on a site that finds, moves the pottery around. So are datings not as precise as, as we would like?
1: Because regarding pottery and, the, I guess, the civilian population, uh, we know on Hadrian's Wall that there are a lot of civilian settlements which spring up around the forts uh, dotted along that frontier. Yeah. And you mentioned that there's one on the eastern side of the Antonine Wall. I mean, how much evidence do we have for civilian settlements emerging on the Antonine Wall
2: alongside the forts? Again, very little. Um, partly because we, we've not done the excavation. Um, some sites we have surveyed, like Carradine, which is the site we were talking about, um, we've done quite a bit of survey there. We've not done huge amounts of excavation, but there's definite evidence of a settlement there. Further eastwards at Cramond, which isn't on the fort but dates to that period, There is a settlement there. We've done a lot of work on that. And Inveresk, which is the next site further east, which is also Antonine, we've got what looks like quite a complicated uh, several periods of activity. I think there are two periods of Antonine activity there and it's a settlement that expands and grows. On the wall itself, we've got very little, but that's more probably because we've not been looking for it, we've not found it, we've not accidentally dug it up and excavated, but we have quite a lot of altars that, that appear on the wall and whilst the military has a lot you do have some concentrations places like Croy Hill has quite an impressive collection of Roman altars some of those are military equally some of those could apply to a civilian settlement that are living nearby so I, I think there's a lot more to be discovered but we haven't got much there but as we see with Hadrian's Wall and other forts and other periods there is a, a supply chain of goods and you know drinking dens and, and all the things that go with that entertainment that follow the military it's, it's where the money is these soldiers have their pay they need to spend it and, and people come along and provide those services interestingly though if you go back to the first century, uh, the Flavian period in Scotland, we have no evidence of any civilian settlements outside the fort, so no strong evidence of that they are likely to be there. Again, we've been a bit limited in, in our Roman studies in Scotland that we tend to stick to the forts and not much beyond those, um, which is a big weakness. It's something we're trying to address in research agendas. But we're just lacking, again, anybody outside those forts. But you you come across there's one site, um, I don't think it's been published yet, but one site I've worked on, where we've been finding bits of pottery outside. We find uh, shapes in the geophysics. It looks like there's a settlement, but we need to excavate it before we can say this is a Roman period settlement. as contemporary with the fort. And yeah, there's material evidence coming up that suggests there's a civilian population there.
1: So the Roman archaeology in Scotland today, as you said, it's been focused quite a bit on the forts. And of course, the crisis at the moment is kind of <laughs> quite a bit on the standstill. But yeah, so... What's the future direction that you and the uh, Scottish archaeology team are looking at at the moment?
2: Well, we're we're moving. We've had um, something called SCARF, which is the Scottish Archaeological Research Framework. It came out, I think, just over a decade, maybe 15 years ago. Brilliant document. It kind of went through all the periods of, of history in Scotland and looked at the strengths and weaknesses and what we need to be looking at. We are now moving or we have been moving, um, I think things are probably a bit on hold at the moment, uh, to more regional frameworks. So what's happening on a more local level? And and that's a great thing that empowers local communities, reflects what people want to, to be aware of in the local area. And it works a lot closer with local groups and societies and museums than the original research framework did. A lot of Scottish archaeology, certainly in the Roman period, is now uh, worked on by archaeological units because it is developer-led, developer-funded. Historic environments, Scotland do research. There's some great Roman uh, Romanists in there. Scotland plays, we're lucky enough to have so many experts, people like... Rebecca Jones and David Breeze and Lawrence Kepi. Lawrence has done a lot of the work on the wall. We're lucky to have these people at the forefront of archaeological research. We we do a lot of cooperation in Scotland. We we work on the frontiers. Roman frontier studies, we're, we're trying to get more global in that. We're trying to look beyond the Scottish boundary or Hadrian's Wall or Britain. So we're trying to expand those areas but with it being developer led, you're very much limited to what the developers are working on that they find out. There's very limited Roman Scottish Roman archaeological research done in Scotland. Um, There are very, very few people doing it at universities in Scotland. Um, I'm at Durham University. Newcastle do some stuff. Edinburgh do one or two bits. I think Glasgow do one or two bits. It's not brilliant. We need to be doing a lot more of that. But the units, the archaeological units, the developer-funded archaeology, is coming up with some great stuff at the moment. So we've found um, in the past four or five years in Aberdeen, um, they've been building a new bypass. They've discovered a new Roman camp. Because it's been discovered in the past 20 years and it's been excavated, they're doing a lot of radiocarbon dating, dates to the first century, this site. It's one of the curious Roman camps um, because it doesn't have any ramparts, so it doesn't appear to have any defences. Um, it's a site called Mill Timber. Um, the other end of the country, in Ayrshire and, and East Scotland, they've been building new school buildings and they've found um, another Roman camp that dates to the first century and as I said earlier on, we don't know much about what's happening in, in the East of Scotland and, and any of the Roman periods so those are coming out with some great stuff but Moving forward, we we, we need to be looking at trying to fill in some of the gaps, some of our knowledge and that. So what are they doing with rivers? How are they coming into Scotland? How long are they actually staying? We need to revisit a lot of the dating for the sites. Um, We have over 150 Roman camps in Scotland. It's the greatest concentration in anywhere in the Empire. But a lot of those we haven't dated and a lot of them are being lost because Roman camps generally aren't as well preserved because they, they tend to be a turf rampart in a field and, and they get ploughed out with time. So we need to be surveying these sites. We need to be doing using modern techniques. We, we do geophysics, certainly when we're doing developer-led stuff. But for all these other sites that aren't developer-led that are being eroded by natural erosion and agriculture, we need to be getting out and surveying those. We need to be recording what they are as i sort of said earlier a lot of these were found fifty, sixty 60 years ago they've never been revisited um things like lidar the the laser scanning we, we need to do a lot more of that and it's a lot more affordable and a lot more achievable now because you can shove lidar equipment on a drone uh shove it up and, you, and you've done it in half an hour
1: of course what you just mentioned now and with scotland being this unstable frontier of the roman empire the military archaeology of the Roman period, is, it sounds like it is abundant, but it's just finding it.
2: Yeah, I mean, as we know, we've got over 300 Roman sites in Scotland. Some of those are uh, probable, they seem quite likely, but we need to excavate. Um, some of those uh, we definitely know about, and others, others are a bit sketchy, but we need to rule them out. The archaeology's there, Roman camps have traditionally shown very little in the archaeological record. You, you've you got your defences, and then it would have been tents inside, so it's very difficult to show that. You know, Tent posts don't tend to show up in the archaeological record because they're only occupied for a brief period. They're not leaving around a lot of material cultures. Only if they break a pot, they shove it in the ditch, and, and then we find it later if, if we're targeting that area. But... The archaeology is there, we just need to do a lot more of it. Um, we excavated a site called Cantor in Aberdeenshire, it's a Roman camp, and it was on a, a little village, and it was being subjected to a lot of development, so we've, we have we excavated something like 75% of that site. It's the most thoroughly excavated Roman camp in the world. Um, we found out so much from that. Because it's taking place in recent years, um, we've been able to do radiocarbon dating, so we know it's occupied in the first century. There's indications that Severus comes back and he camps there, or in the vicinity. So it's there, but it's finding the time, the money, which is the important thing. They always tell you if you go to Vindolanda, every shoe they find costs them something like £200 to conserve that. So, you know, you've got to have the money and the backup to be able to excavate these big things, which is why developer-led funding is is the way we're going in Scotland. Um, But research excavation, we need to be targeting sites, we need to revisit, as I say, all these 150-odd Roman camps and, and get them surveyed. Then we need to think about targeted excavation. Antonine Wall, we're quite lucky because it was visited by antiquarians. So we've got a lot of old, two, three hundred old accounts of what it looked like. You don't tend to get that in many other parts of Scotland.
1: You mentioned his name just there, Severus, and it would be amiss of me not to mention him or us to talk about him, albeit briefly, with the Antonine Wall. Now, because the Antonine Wall, we said it's abandoned near the end of the second century, but that is definitely not the end of Roman Scotland, is it?
2: No, um, you've you've got Antonine Wall abandoned, um, Hadrian's Wall reoccupied. It probably still has a footprint in southern Scotland. And then you get Septimius Severus, who comes over. He's emperor around hundred and eighty something, I think. Can't quite remember, but around two hundred and eight, he comes over to Britain and decides, I've got these two sons. They're going. To Both inherit the empire. They need to do a military campaign. Let's go take Scotland. It must be easy to do because no one's ever achieved it. And he bases himself at York, um, which is the big Ladry fortress, with some indication that when he's in York, uh, they do some expanding of the buildings, develop it, and then the whole army moves forward north. We we have a lot of large, um, I think it's around 65 acre 55 to 65 acre camps in scotland and we believe those date to that period because he's bringing such a big force we have a camp in the borders called saint leonard's it used to be the biggest known roman camp in the world um it's now the second biggest because there's a bigger one in romania apparently by about half an acre or something but they they march northwards as i say um we know he stands at the end of britain and and talks about how how much difference in light there is from Rome. We can plot, we think from the camp sizes, sometimes artefacts, we can date size, but they're going up to Aberdeenshire at least. Um, and then he gets, well, he's quite ill and infirm when he's campaigning. He's carried about the place on, on a sort of sedan chair thing, um, returns to York and he drops dead. I think if you go into York, Minster underneath... There's a little plaque on the wall where he's believed to have dropped dead. So he drops dead and then the sons start a civil war and everybody leaves Scotland. And and that that is where you think it would end. Um, we've got a couple of accounts that, that imply there may have been later campaigns. Now, we, we don't have anything in the archaeological record, um, but then... No one's ever really been looking for this later material. There's been no scientific dating of these sites. But we've got, I think it's over 100 Roman camps in Scotland which are undated. So we need to, again, as I say, do more work on those camps because we might be able to match up these later incursions into Scotland. But we we don't know anything other than they went to Scotland sort of thing. So we've nothing showing up in the archaeological record. But uh, Scotland seems to have been quite an attractive place for them to keep coming and campaigning. We've got three major campaigns and, and other periods when they're coming in yes
1: because isn't isn't it possible that Constantine the Great actually campaigned in Scotland just before he was crowned emperor
2: there There's a couple of um activities I think in the third and fourth centuries that that imply that um, there's one or two other people as well that that's indicated they they come north. The thing we've got to remember is Scotland is a geopolitical entity that's created in the medieval period. The Roman texts sort of generally sort of say Britannia, and at that period, Britannia well, after the first century, Britannia grows, shrinks, and grows, and shrinks, and chopped up in various different ways. So when they say they're heading north, we're never quite sure where north is. Usually it's beyond a the wall, they say. We're never quite sure which wall they're talking about.
1: And his last question: You mentioned there the antiquarians, uh, the, the records that they have of the Antonine Wall. What legacy does the Antonine Wall leave on Northern Britain, what now is the central part of Scotland? And so we have written records from a few centuries in the Middle Ages and the Age of Revolution.
2: Yeah, I mean we've. we've I mean, the Antonine Wall, like Hadrian's Wall, it continues after. It stops being a Roman monument and it becomes this this sort of localised entity. And, of course, in Scotland, it divides the country in half. So much so, when they come to start building the canals in the the industrial period, they're they're following the line of the wall. So we're lucky, again, like Hadrian's Wall, we've we've got these antiquarians which decide they're off to go walkies along the wall and and chart it. We have... um, Robert Sibbald, who he's around sixteen nineties, he starts charting it. Um, We've got Horsley, who I think's the early eighteenth century. Alexander Gordon, he's seventeen twenties. We we've got quite a few. We've got William Roy. He's he goes on to found what becomes the Ordnance Survey. He's a military surveyor. He's sent into Scotland after the first Jacobite uprising. So it's the second Jacobite uprising, he comes into Scotland to start building roads. um, And he surveys a lot of the Roman monuments. We have various letters where where there are accounts taken. So it's hugely important that that we've got these accounts because, as I say, the Industrial Revolution really starts... uh, You've got George Stevenson doing testing at Keneal, early railway testing... In the centre, you've got um, near Falkirk, place called Caron. That's where the ironworks build and develop, and that's next to the wall. It may have been a Roman harbour at one point. We've got um, a monument called Arthur's Oon, which I, I won't go into, but that's situated in that location. That gets destroyed because of the Industrial Revolution where they take the stone to build a dam. We've got all this going on, so a lot of it disappears at that time. We've also got a lot of agricultural works that happen around the times of the Napoleonic Wars. They start bringing in uh, more drainage, becoming more efficient at farming and agriculture. It's the big agricultural revolution taking place, and a lot of that damages the monuments. They start ploughing the sites out and things like that. So it's a huge period in, in this part of Scotland. Going back earlier than that, we we have various accounts from Bede mentions the wall. So the Venerable Bede, he's around the 5th century, I think. Um, Sorry, he's not 5th century, he's 730s in Historia Ecclesiastica. Um, We've got other accounts coming later. We have Nennius, who is a biographer of one of the saints. Um, He talks about different aspects of the wall. Scotland has um, historian John of Ford Dunne. Um, He comes around in the 1300s. He starts recording about the wall, does a, a proper history of it. So this monument features in Scotland all the time. Um, It never really becomes a geopolitical boundary. Hadrian's Wall does. And, and he, even today, people still think it's the Scottish-English border, which is... More or less rubbish. Um, there's a few places where it comes close in, near Carlisle. Um, but people see that as a boundary. Queen Elizabeth I wants to uh, rebuild and reoccupy Hadrian's Wall. You come into, even in the independence uh, referendum a couple of years ago, you've got newspaper cartoons doing that as the, li- the limit of, of Scotland and England. So the Antonine Wall never really becomes that. And I suspect that's because it's a turf monument. And by the time you're getting into the medieval period, it's eroding. The river boundaries are more important in the medieval period than the Antonine Wall, but but it still plays a huge part in life. And then, say, the antiquarians from 1690s really onwards start looking at it as a, as a this wondrous Roman monument and trying to understand it, trying to understand who built it and things like that.
1: Fascinating. Uh, Andrew, the book is called...
2: It is Beyond the uh, Empire, Guide to the Roman Remains of Scotland.
1: Fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.